Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm joined once again today by my good friend, Dale Stenberg, my faithful co-host. And today we decided we want to talk a little bit about natural law. We talk a a good bit about natural law sort of in passing on this program, and it might be a good idea then to have at least uh, one episode, and maybe we'll have have several throughout time, not necessarily in a series, but... um, uh, at least uh, one or more episodes where we talk about just what is natural law, how does it help us, and what, uh, crucially, what isn't natural law. Um, a lot of this, uh, in Dale, I guess we can just get right into it, you know, a lot of this, I think, is uh, people have a maybe an odd understanding when they hear natural law, and maybe they've seen it like this sometimes, maybe sometimes it's presented this way. Uh, you see natural law as sort of a, a sort of moral cheat sheet or something like that, where we can get outside of the Bible and go into the big bad secular realm. And there's this kind of independent free floating uh, uh, set of positive laws that are just sort of there to be pointed to and grabbed at. And that's not, maybe that's not entirely untrue, but it's, 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 uh, it's at least a distorted understanding, I think. That's not quite what we're after when we want to talk about natural law. What do you think are, maybe that's one way of putting the error. What are other things you see as, or how would you describe what you see are commonly maybe misunderstandings of natural law? Yeah, sure. Um, so first, I think you, you were just right there when you said, you know, I think some of the suspicion comes from um, people getting outside of their Bibles. And that's a, that's at the root of it. That's a good sort of impulse. I mean, we want to be tethered to objective truth. What has God revealed to us uh, in the Bible on how we should conduct ourselves and how we should think about the world. Um, so that's a good natural Protestant instinct. Uh, what I think the caricature of natural law is, is that we use it as a replacement for special revelation. And a lot of times when I talk to um, evangelicals, I, I wanna say, it's actually not either or, it's both. It's both end. Uh, God has revealed himself in the scriptures most clearly, but he also has revealed himself as the psalmist says in the heavens. Um, and we can um, come to understand something better about God by looking at the way that he has designed the, the cosmos. And natural law is just simply recognizing that human beings have a conscience that informs us of rightness and wrongness in moral situations. But it also communicates, it's it's recognizing that uh, God upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. And so everything that exists, all of creation is actually God speaking. Yeah, it's a charged with meaning, charged with divine thoughts in a in a way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so there, there, we 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 don't want to become, you know, I guess, and I don't want to just, I don't want to just dance around the errors because that would just be weird. Number one. Yeah. Um, So perhaps instead of doing that, we can lay out a positive case for what we're saying when we when we use the term. Yeah, uh, natural law, and then some of the implications of that. Yeah, I think I think one thing along, you know, that just sort of gets us started there is that natural law is first, you know, I think in a classical sense, is first something that you are and do before it's a, a set of content that you know. 
sometimes we talk about natural law as though it's mostly again about sort of downloading sort of positive laws into our consciousness from the ether or something like that. Right. Whereas natural law is much more on the ground. It's actually about you are this sort of thing. And this is just what you, your nature naturally is trying to do. And we'll talk in a bit about how sin and, and ignorance uh, are consistent with and, and play into that. But in principle, it's just saying like this is this is what life which this is what life actually looks like and it and it's um, we see it in some sense we see that that's true because even people who deny natural law discourse or deny sort of certain things we think we can infer from natural law that is looking at human behavior and sort of seeing via reason like what is you know what are the patterns that are good for human beings that they kind of naturally tend to do for instance that human beings naturally tend to get married you know this sort of thing um but we can see even in the denials it seems to me when people say oh no there is nothing like that that's by nature uh, you can point and say like but look at your own life look at what happens when you deny it. It turns out that when you're not thinking about it and you're not reading your Nietzsche or whatever it is and uh, you know, trying to come up with your alternative moral system, your moral instincts and actually your moral behaviors in a lot of cases reflect this sort of system of gravity that's pulling you in a certain direction. And so I recall there is a, there's a couple of examples of this. You know, when we think about natural law discourse in our context, it's it's particularly uh, inflected through questions that have come to the fore in the sexual revolution, right? It's like LGBTQ stuff and and, uh, and uh, monogamy versus polygamy, all this sort of thing, polyamory or whatever. These are all live sort of sort of questions we're throwing around. And natural law discourse is this kind of thing that's coming alongside, and it's one moral language to talk about how to navigate those 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 moral questions. But what's interesting is no matter what anybody says about that, no matter if they reject the natural law view and they you know, have a different moral system, it's interesting to see the ways in which um, the kind of gravity of reality pulls them back in a certain direction toward what the natural law tradition points at. So for instance, it's interesting in the LGBTQ community how much uh, sort of heteronormative impulses, that's a language they use, right? These heteronormative impulses are still quite operative. It's all of a sudden like, well, we can't just, you know, sort of have this kind of wild and crazy lifestyle. We need to be thinking about things like gay marriage and adoption. And all of a sudden, all these sort of systems of kind of this is an ordinary pattern of living gravity have to kind of be reincorporated into the system, even though in principle rejects, um, it rejects this kind of moral language. And you see that in other, many other uh, gender, many other description things about gender and various controversies in our society. And I think it's actually quite important. What's really interesting, I think, from a natural law perspective is that the debate is not so much, and this is a huge mistake rhetorically I think people make, is that the debate always becomes, let me criticize the things that you think are okay. Uh, and instead, here's my argument for natural law and what it would say is okay. And that's a right conversation to have. I'm not denying that's a conversation to have. But I think in an interesting rhetorical strategy is actually to say, hey, look, even when you reject this thing, look at how this thing still is showing up in your lived world. You actually can't really escape from it, uh, it, it on the pain of incoherence. Uh, and so in that way, natural law, and we'll talk about natural law in a, in a more robust way, maybe in a moment, but at least it, one first gesture toward what is a positive concept of natural law is that it's first a kind of gravity 
that is pulling you by your nature in a particular direction rather than first a set of content that you know, even though we'll talk for what it means to know in content natural law as well. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and um, and that's so important because I, I think what you, you started off saying there is just, um, it's, you know, the, the term lived experience is uh, used a lot nowadays. And uh, in some sense, it's a helpful term. For example, we all have the, uh, the lived experience of what it means to be a human. Um, mm. So we, we order ourselves in similar ways and we always have. I mean, you look at the, uh, the law of Moses and the code of Hammurabi. Right, they all have sort of principles, moral principles that um, are getting at the same thing. And these are cultures that are separated by uh, time and uh, geographical location. And so it's a phenomenon that you just can't sort of wave off as accidental or whatever. You really have to deal with what it is um, that unites hum humanity as a species. And I think that that's what you're, you're saying. Mm. Um, even with uh, some of the gender stuff that we're dealing with today in 2020. And I mean, you could, you could apply this to a whole host of cultural problems, right? Abortion, um, like you mentioned, uh, uh, homosexual marriage, um, all of the controversies that's come up around LGBTQ stuff. And um, while, while they're, tr while the gender conversation is, they are trying to change the natural way that we think about gender roles. Um, they always proceed along one sort of line that um, is actually undermining what they're trying to do. So if you have a strong independent woman that's uh, you know, climbing her way up the corporate ladder um, and she doesn't need no man to help her, uh, you know that when she is looking for a spouse, she is looking for things in that spouse um, that are natural. So she's not going to marry down. She's not going to be a you know top exec at some Fortune 500 company uh, that looks at the janitor that cleans the office as a potential suitor. She's going to look for someone that satisfies those natural womanly instincts to be provided and to be protected. And men also do the same thing when we're looking at a, a, a potential mate. Um, a potential wife, we're looking for distinctly feminine things. And that might actually show up in uh, um, the homosexual community as well. You might see that um, while there, Pete, you and I were talking earlier, Pete Buttigieg is a, is a great example. While he's a, a homosexual man uh, that gets married, he buys a house and they, they get a dog and they organize their life around the normal way that people are just organizing their life. Um, so I guess I'm sort, we're sort of repeating uh, what we just said. Yeah, and there's, <laughs> and there's obviously like, there's exceptions to all of this, right. but what's interesting is to see the kind of gravitational pull operative in the community. So for instance, there are, there are those cases where uh, maybe a man or a woman are attracted to something that's, you know, sort of relatively non-traditional. But there have been studies that are just interesting where it's like, 
if you take sort of discourse about what's sexist and what's not sexist, for instance, and you and you and you bracket that over here, and then you go over here with this very same group of people and say, what are you actually attracted to? What do you want in a mate? And what's interesting, I, I think the, the study that was done about this recently, the the there was sort of a, an abstract poll where you say um uh, sort of rank rank uh, uh, a set of behaviors from sort of like you know you know you know he's a pig of a man to a woke awesome dude that you should be interested in, and at some point in the layer it was this category called something like a benevolent or benign uh, I, I don't want to say it was misogyny but or patriarchy or something like that I don't remember exactly the nomenclature but it was sort of like benevolent stuff we don't actually quite, we're not quite on board with, something's wrong with it. But then when you bracketed it over here where it's like, what are you actually attracted to? And what was interesting is the the category of sort of, you know, the benevolent sexism or whatever it was called was actually right. via phenomenology, via like, what is just the thing that does it for you? Uh, it wound up being this kind of, there's something a little primitive about it, sure. you know? And so, uh, and it's, and again, there's lots of, clarifications and qualifications we can make and all that sort of thing. But what's interesting is you see those systems, uh, you see those systems of reality operative at the moment we stop thinking about them. And it's, um, yeah. and this is where, um, nevertheless, this is where, you know, we, on the one hand, we're saying natural law is a kind of a, a thing that you are and do before it's a content that you know. Nevertheless, there is such a thing uh, as, as natural law discourse, right? There's, um, uh, in other words, it's saying uh, there's a discourse where we're actually trying to look at the world and reflect upon it and talk about it in order to have guidance within it. And in one way, that impulse um, toward practical reasoning from the world, let me see the patterns of the world so that I can participate in them in a healthy way, that's a very old impulse, right? That's the that's the impulse of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's Solomon pointing out all, all around at things and like, look at that thing and look at that thing and like that God is communicating to you there. That helps you. Uh, and in fact, it, it's assumed. And I was just reading through Exodus, uh, and it's there. There's this interesting line in Exodus where God basically says, if Israel's faithful, the nations will look at them and say, how just are its laws. Yeah. There's something in them that can recognize justice. Like, oh, they can say like, oh, that's actually, when it, once it's said out loud, you know, the, the Hammurabi people can look at the Moses people and say, well, we thought we had it together. Look at those guys. You know, they're even closer to the mark. And uh, in fact, um, there's a lot of biblical scholarship on this, that the very Hebrew, the Hebrew concept of righteousness, Mark Seifert has written on this. The Hebrew concept of righteousness is actually only makes sense against the backdrop of the created order yes. and maintaining it. And so, um, so uh, there's this great, you know, Genesis 18. Moses, Moses, uh, Moses. Uh, sorry, so Abraham says to to, to the to the, the the angel of the Lord, uh, but Abraham basically says, you know, he's haggling about um, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, well, you're not going to kill it if there's, you know, if there's 50 righteous people there are, you will not the Lord of all the earth do right. And you think, well, that's audacious. Here he is talking to the Lord of all the earth about what's right. right. And, but the Lord's response is actually, oh, of course, I'm going to do what's right. Of course, I'm not going to, you know, you know, you know, you know, fire and brimstone this place if there's 50 righteous people there. Right. But the whole point is, is that Moses is sort of talking about this. This kind of this kind of moral gravity 
that it's from God, and therefore, you know, the contradiction, surely God can't violate the very thing that's from himself, uh, right? And so, so in one sense, you know, and we maybe we'll talk in just a little bit about the, the tradition of natural law in the more ordinary sense, but in one sense, this is the, you know, this, this, the impulse that, that is behind what we call natural, the natural law tradition or natural law discourse is an impulse that's just part of man. It's to yeah. look at the world, reflect on it, and try and see the patterns there and have those orient you in accordance with the gravity that you already always already feel. Uh, yeah, right. And, and and it doesn't um, it doesn't relegate knowledge of God merely to the Bible. And I because right. God, I don't if if that was God's uh, intention for man just to know about Him via special revelation, then um, He wouldn't have given us all the cool stuff we have to look at and reflect on. Um, you know, there there's an unspoken. Um, I don't want to use the word sentimentality, but that would probably be the best word I could use. But when you watch a sunrise over the beach, there's something about the beauty of it that conveys the artistry of the creator, uh, his swipes of the paintbrush, so to speak, on the canvas mm. of reality um, that resonates so deeply with everyone across the globe that we have to start beginning, we, we have to begin to ask ourselves, why? Why is it that God gave us trees? Why is it that God gave us, um, you know, bugs and birds and reptiles? Is it, uh, it's not just an expression of his creative genius, but it's um, a, a revelation that he wants his uh, very special creatures, humans, to derive knowledge of himself. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one, um, that uh, what can be known about God is clearly perceived. And uh, it's in the things that are made. And then he goes on in Romans chapter two to talk about how the Gentiles not having the law do by nature what the law requires. Right. So that's fascinating. Why do the Gentiles that don't have the Decalogue that was given to Moses on Sinai, why, do, why are they actually following the Decalogue if they don't even know about it? Right. And that's just part of us. And um, I'm going to, I want to read something real quick from uh, Herman Bovink. Yeah. Uh, because I think it would be worth talking about, but it also will um, sort of help us to move into a theological direction on what we're, what we're discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So um, he says this in uh, his dogmatics, I believe it's the second volume. He says, the proper starting point for any theory of knowledge is the universal and natural certainty we find spontaneously in our ordinary experience. We trust our senses, which lead us to believe in objective world external to us. And our mental representations of that world point back to that reality. So good. Uh, <laughs> from this, we conclude that scientific demonstrative certainty is neither the basic nor the only kind of human certainty. There is also a universal, metaphysical, intuitive, immediate kind of certainty that is self-evident and which we call the certainty of faith. 
Uh, and then he goes on a little bit further and he says, the theological explanation for this is the conviction that it is the same logos who created both the reality outside of us and the laws of thought within us. The world is created in such a way that an organic connection and correspondence is possible between our minds and the reality external to us. The world is an embodiment of the thoughts of God. Yeah. That's just, you know, brilliant. Um, yeah. What Bavink is saying is that God has equipped us with all the faculties we need to become self-aware and then to also learn something about him in the external world, given the faculties that he's equipped us with to interpret the external yeah, world. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, there's a whole debate in scholarship about what was so, you know, when we tell the history of philosophy, and this is a great segue into kind of the more Western uh, Greek and Roman tradition of natural law. Um, uh, but but there's a whole debate about why is, you know, Thales or Thales, however we say it, so significant. Like he's always seen as like kind of the first philosopher, all is water, right? Right. And there's sort of like, you know, and, and people ask, because you're curious, right? Like, why, why is that the starting point? Why isn't it the next guy? Why isn't it three guys later? Why do we go back to Thales? <laughs> Uh, and so there's this, and, and that's a part of a larger dispute about what, what is the nature of the transition between mythos and logos? Why is it that it, in Greece in XBC, myths were kind of your guide, and then in Greece in YBC, uh, all of a sudden this project called philosophy uh, seems relevant? And, and not that myths are irrelevant, but what's the transition and how are they differently weighted? And one of the things... Uh, one hypothesis uh, that's out there is that uh, actually what you just, what Bavink just said, interestingly, and that is just the, just the idea that thoughts, like what's actually really revolutionary in Thales is just the idea that thoughts might have some resonance with the structure of reality. That is to say, if I go on a mental, if I go on the journey of thinking about things critically, if I just go on the journey of observing and thinking and inferring, uh, the, the, the reality will yield to that because it's written in the language of these thoughts. Yes. Uh, and so what you see, and that doesn't mean any of their particular conclusions are correct, but, but moving toward the world in that way is an interesting project that we're still doing. It's yep. a, still a living project moving toward. And that's where natural law as a historic discourse actually came in. It was part of that discourse. It was saying like, um, you know, things have natures. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's in part the same mental motion that's going on in the Proverbs, but it's combined with that thing you just said. Nevertheless, the structures in our mind have something to do with the structures that are out there in the world. There's a, there, let's, let's go on the assumption. Let's work as though there's a, there's a resonance between those things. Um, and what that did with natural law discourse then is we can think about, you know, sort of what are natures? What is it? What it, what is a thing? What will help us have guidance in terms of like uh, uh, knowing what a thing ought to do or have a sense of like how to move through this, you know, confusing world is to have a sense of what things are and what's good for them, you know, and what's good for a thing is, 
uh, determined by looking at what a thing is. And so you go through the questions of how can I know a thing? What's the nature of a thing? Then therefore, what would be good for that thing? And, and, and then of course, there's going to be complicated conversations about hierarchies of goods, like right. maybe because, and, the, and, and that's a, a part of natural law discourse that can sometimes be missed, is that natures never really exist in the abstract. Uh, natures always exist in communities of other natures. And what you're actually looking for in, in natural law at a higher level is what is actually conducive to the flourishing of all things, to the unleashing of the of the beauties that are possible in all things. And there's there's maybe other ways of, of saying that, but in principle, it seems a uh, you know it seems like a pretty a pretty fair question. And again, what what that gives us is not so much it's not so much if we're you know into the idea of natural law, it's not so much that we're agreeing with every moral kind of calculus and conclusion that has existed in the history of natural law theory. Sure. Rather, natural law theory is a discourse that has bequeathed to us a kind of moral apparatus. It's a set of terms and languages and distinctions that we can that help us go into the world and think about things in a particularly clear way. Um, and so, you know, natural law discourse in some ways, again, it's, I think it's continuous what, what we find in the ancient Near East and just looking at the world and reflecting on it and detecting its patterns. But there are some distinctive things that are sort of added onto it that become what we know now as a natural law discourse, which, um, you know, it's hard to say that it's not helpful to ask, like, what are, what is the nature of a thing? You know, when you're determining what is good for a thing, that has everything to do with what, what the thing is. Sure. What's it for? <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, I think it's important to say this because um, it's like, what is a man? What is a woman? This is what you're talking about, the nature of a thing. Yeah. Uh, what is a human? Uh, what is life? What does that mean? You know? Yeah. Um, and when we begin to ask those things, what I think Bovink is saying is a lot of this is just self-evident. It's a priori. Before we make any arguments about the thing, it resonates with us because that's the experience that we just have as a species. Um, and I think it would be helpful to mm. contrast what if we didn't have something called natural law, right? Like, so what if we denied the basic claims of natural law discourse, as you're, as you're uh, telling us. Right. And um, there's an 18th century theologian uh, named Francis Turretin. He's my favorite uh, theologian of all time. Um, he's got a, a remarkable uh, three-volume systematic theology that uh, all of the theology nerds and uh, people that are really interested in recovering um, a scholastic take on uh, the Reformation that you must have this, it must be on your bookshelf. But he gives uh, six reasons for why, for the proofs of natural law. Uh, so I won't, we don't have time to go into all of them. I just want to mention them. And then I want to focus in on his fifth uh, reason for affirming natural law. And then maybe we can talk about some of those. Yep. So uh, he's, he says the first proof of natural law is from scripture. So that's something that we haven't mentioned yet. The Bible actually, well, we did mention it with Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Proverbs, and you mentioned Ecclesiastes and some of the wisdom literature. 
um, we find precedent for this concept or this theory that we're calling natural law actually in the Bible. God wants us to look at the world and discursively come to conclusions about his nature. Yeah, and the Bible sort of shoots us into the world, which shoots us back to the Bible, which shoots us back into the world, and it's this reciprocal relationship, right? Yes, and, and the Bible is the norming norm, right? Right. Like that's the way that we talk about the Bible. So we take our experiences and looking at the world and looking at nature, and then we bring it to the scriptures and the scriptures sort of smooth out all the rough edges of our conclusions. Right. Um, and that is a healthy way to live your right. life. Because we're ignorant. <laughs> because we are exactly. Yeah. And right. we're sinful. Yeah, that's um, right. So the, so the first proof that Turretin talks about is uh, of natural laws from scripture. The second one is the consent of nations, which we sort of hinted at by mention, mentioning the code of Hammurabi and the, and the code of Moses. And really, you can see it in, contempor in our contemporary uh, context with like uh, a, an agency like the UN, right? The United Nations has ethical things built into how we can kill each other in war. Right. <laughs> like why yeah. why do, why can't we drop mustard gas uh on north korea um why can't we displace whole governmental structures overnight why right. do we have to allow nations to maintain order why do we think it's wrong that people are persecuted for their religious belief right you know? uh so it's it's just built into the worldwide community, but we also see it in America. We have a rich tradition of ethics and morals that we've built our nation upon. And those things have guided the way that we exist together in communities. So it's love of God and love of neighbor fleshed out in legislation. Uh, that's to say nothing about the current catastrophes that are happening all over the place. Right. Uh, but that was Turretin's second proof was the consent of nations all of us basically agree on some morals that yeah. reflect the 10 commandments. Yeah. Yeah. They're yep. Right. And uh, the third one is from the conscience of each man. So I said at the beginning, natural law is basically just admitting that we have a conscience that convicts us when we do something wrong and vindicates us when we do something correct. Mm. Uh, the fourth one is from God's government over man. And this is sort of the hierarchical structure that you talked about. The creator has made things in a particular way and designed them to function along a particular, uh, in a particular way. And when we come into line with that uh, design, we are actually operating as God designed everything to operate. He's controlling, we're moving in his machinery, so to speak. Uh, but the fifth one is from absurdities. The, the sixth one is from the testimonies of the heathen which is uh, what Augustine would talk about. And he used the analogy of plundering the Egyptians, right? right. When the Israelites yeah. plundered the Egyptians, yes. that's what we do to the heathens, the pagans. Yes. Uh, we take Plato and Aristotle and all of these men and we- this, this is them telling their nervous readers, you're allowed to read the pagan philosophers. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. 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 Because all truth is God's truth. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, but I want to I wanna, I wanna talk about if we deny natural law, where we end up in an absurd sort of uh, mode of existence. This is Turretin's number five. This is Turretin's number five. Yeah. He says, 
for if nothing is just by nature, but that only which can be made to minister to human advantage, it follows that men are born for themselves and not for the glory of God or for the good of society, of which there is by nature in them an earnest desire. We desire to worship God. We desire to, 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 um, mm. for the good of our neighbor. That's a natural impulse. I don't want to see my neighbor burn to death, right? In other right. words, or, or to see him plundered. Uh, he says, which the wiser heathen themselves acknowledged could not be said. Not even the heathens would say that, right? He said, number two, all things, if we deny natural law, all things would be equally lawful. He's sort of getting at what we would call subjectivism here. All things would be equally lawful to hate God as well as to love him, to kill parents as well as to honor them. And each one's own will would be to him for a reason and a law so that he might do whatever he pleased. Number yeah. three, this moral right and government of God being taken away, natural law, all the foundations of rights will be removed. All the laws of men, which could have flowed from no other source, and thus all government, honesty and order in human society will perish, and the world we will be turned into, into mere confusion and villainy. Turretin's saying if we do away with natural law, you're going to end up with anarchy. There will be no standard by which we can all agree on as a people to organize ourselves in community because whatever my will is becomes to me reason and law. Yes, and uh, right, right. And it's important to say it's not, it's not as though what you just said implies that people who agree on natural law agree on all moral things. That's not the point. Right. But there's a common frame of reference and language to go to to adjudicate those differences. And something else you said that I think is um, really crucial um, is that natural law, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of what it is you just said, but it, what, it, what it stoked in my mind is that natural law, and this is crucial, is mediated by the mind and the will. Um, and so it's helpful to say, um, on the one hand, it's a thing we tend to do. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something we are and do before it's a discourse that we understand. But there's a dimension of the human moral life, an intrinsic dimension of the human moral life, that just is mediated through the mind and will. And this is sort of an old scholastic claim, right? Is that other animals kind of fulfill their instinct almost entirely by having a sort of embodied nature that propels them toward a certain set of actions, right. you know? And so animals just act naturally in a certain sort of way, for the most part, you could speak of maybe some distortions. Um, but human beings aren't quite like that. Human beings have a whole complex apparatus of being a discursive moral reasoning animal where to pursue our good and to find our final beatitude actually requires a, a mental and moral journey that goes through the mind, through the understanding, through the will, through the activation of things like choices and deliberations and that sort of thing. And natural law is a guide through that process and maybe a, an orienting point toward an, toward an end there. But it is, it is, yes, very much a process. And something that's also crucial to, to add to that uh, is that 
Natural law, you know, one of the things we want to talk about is the relationship between natural law and things like custom and tradition. Right. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, is it that, uh, uh, you know, so one objection to natural law might be, hey, it's not actually that natural law gives us all these conclusions. It's actually that custom and tradition weigh so heavily in ordinary human beings that we just happen to agree because these have such a great pedigree. And what's interesting, I think, in more traditional natural law discourse is actually that those aren't quite intention. It was always assumed, in fact, that natural law, because of the kinds of creatures that we are, because we're communal animals who exist in a discursive relationship with other persons, it's always been assumed in the, in the, in the tradition. This is why Plato writes in dialogues, right? right. <laughs> People interacting with one another. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's always been assumed that that it's not as though any of us has a perfect grasp of, of, of the order of things and that that discursive communal mediation, just as in language and in many other things, uh, is actually just assumed. It's the background against which we operate in this way. And it's and it's mediating, but the thing is, is why did why did certain things like marriage, you know, why did certain practices like or certain claims like it's bad to murder, why do those become such common customs? Even if they're mediated through custom, why are they such common customs? And the answer is largely because um, they're good, right? <laughs> because and that's what drags human beings and like, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think part of, I mean, the, the whole, the basis for natural law is the fact that we're made in the image of God. Uh, that's, that, that is why the phenomenon of um, looking at human life as sacred and valuable. That is why we think that, because we have the nature of a human and by design, God has made us to value what it means to be a human and to propagate life, uh, to continue mm -hmm. the species on. Because every time we have a child, we are bringing into the world a little beam of God's glory that reflects something of his image. Uh, so so the, the image of God in man is really the foundation for natural law. And when right. we're operating as rational creatures, we're coming to conclusions organically, as Bob Inc. says, as we look back at the world, or we look back at reality when we can understand that we're an agent in this created space. And this created space is telling us something. When we look back at that reality, it communicates something to us because God has made it that way. We right. can't, and, and the further that we deny that, the further we move outside of the boundaries of natural law, the more that we begin to question um, ancient old traditions and customs that have kept humanity moving towards prosperity um, and peace. Now, that's not to say that every custom and tradition is worthy of continuing. Yes. Right? Uh, this is something that you and I talked about. Yeah. Um, there are customs and traditions that are bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and the only reason that we can say that they're bad is because as the human, as humans um, go through these epics of history, we can write the ship, we can correct the course 
slavery is a good example. Um, you know, Jonathan Edwards and some of the Puritans get George Whitfield get brought up and condemned for owning slaves uh, during uh, the, the founding of or shortly after the founding of America. Right. And from a moral perspective, you and I look at that and you go, chattel slavery is abhorrent. Yeah. And absolutely. it is a sin and the Bible condemns it. And those men, and, and anybody that participated in man stealing according to biblical law and ethics should be murdered or not murdered should be killed. Right. Yeah. Like it's that serious to God that you not steal human beings. Right. Um, at the same time, there was a cultural context in which this, that practice, that practice uh, was not the, the moral repulsion against that practice wasn't so heightened. Yeah. But the abolition of that practice shows us that inevitably humans that commune together that start a project in society will gravitate towards the natural order of things yes it's not natural in, to in as it. much as in as much as they are and this is such a i think such a crucial thing for our time in as much as they are in the project of repentance and i think this is mm -hmm. kind of the christian kind of approach to culture in a certain sort of way is to say that natural uh, is to say that custom and tradition, and this is, you know, partly just fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother, sure. custom and tradition mediate much wisdom to you, but you're, but, but, but uh, all of our ancestors are also ignorant in some ways and sinful in some ways, just as we are. And so it also, you don't want to reject tradition and throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's giving you a lot of insight that you need and that has been passed down precisely because it's rich, right. but it can also mediate folly. And part of what a repenting civilization looks like is you have a, and this is what natural law discourse as a more explicit discourse can do for us both as, as, as individuals and as a civilization. It, it not, and again, in conversation with scripture, it's not like one or the other, but it can say, um, nevertheless, like we, we have out of accordance with what is actually natural to us when we really think about it, become numb to a practice that we have committed for generations, maybe centuries. And sure, a couple of people along the way have kind of saw it, you know, your William Wilberforces or whatever, and said like, hey guys, actually this is way out of alignment with right. anything that we should be about. Yes. Um, uh, and so, so there's, there's both things there, exactly, that again, you're, you're, that was, uh, a tradition sort of mediates natural law, but it also mediates folly. And that's precisely why it's crucial. That's precisely, in fact, why it's crucial to have a, um, uh, a concept of natural law that's, a, that's beyond that. It's not just mediated through civilization. It's also an apparatus that you want to continue using precisely for the betterment of civilization. And there can be a certain conservative impulse that, that so value, the, the liberal impulse in some ways is to so value the reform and the reform project that just whatever's in the past is not to be preserved. Then the conservative impulse can be to say, it's only what's in the past that matters such that you don't actually get into the repentance reformed project that is necessary both in an individual human life and in a civilization to be, to be moving forward. And in fact, there's this brilliant, I think the Lewis in Miracles captures this so beautifully. I'll read a quote, a quote from Miracles where I think he gets this just so well. He says, um, 
the rational and moral element in each human mind is a, is a point of force from the supernatural working its way into nature, exploiting at each point those conditions which nature offers, repulsed when, where the conditions are hopeless and, impede, and impeded when they are unfavorable. A man's rational thinking is just so much of his share in eternal reason as the state of his brain allows to become operative. It represents, so to speak, the bargain struck at the frontier fixed between reason and nature at that particular point. And this is where he goes on. This is natural law here, especially as mediated by custom. A nation's moral uh, outlook is just so much of its share in eternal moral wisdom as its history, economics, etc., lets lets through. In the same way, the voice of the announcer is just so much of a human voice as the receiving set lets through. Of course, it varies with the state of the receiving set and deteriorates as the set wears out and vanishes altogether if I throw a brick at it. It is conditioned by the apparatus, but not originated by it. If it were, if we knew that there was no human being at the microphone, we should not attend to the news. And, and, and I love that image that, that, that um, uh, you know, what we call sort of, a, a, sort of a nation's moral reasoning, its wisdom is just the extent to which it hasn't prevented in a way. I like that language of preventing. It's actually us preventing what's natural to us in a lot of way. And the, the image of suppression is there. Suppression is holding down the thing that your nature is actually going for. And that's what sin and ignorance do is actually cause us to kind of collapse in on ourselves and, and civilization does that and shove back what's actually good for us. And what, when we encounter it, and I think this is absolutely crucial, in what, when we encounter it, we realize is good for us. And this is what's so interesting to me about how universal Christianity has become. Mm -hmm. The moment Jesus comes on the scene into world history, uh, and all of a sudden the ordinary teaching is actually, hey, uh, hey, men, um, you actually need to love your wives. Yes. You actually need to be gracious and understanding to these women. That teaching has gone to no human community where once it took a hold, that community looked back and said, wow. hey, you know, you know what? It's arbitrary. We could have just as well done this other thing that we were doing before as this. No, as soon as you get into that project, you realize, oh, uh, well, actually, this is pretty good for us, isn't it? This is sure. actually better. This is, I think, what we're supposed to be doing. Yes. <laughs> we're always already supposed to be doing this. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, that is such a good point. And maybe, um, maybe we'll start to wrap up on this point. But uh, so you're right. In 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 the ancient world, marriage was at times seen more like a political ordeal. You know, I have, I want a daughter so that I can marry my daughter off to this king's son over here and our two empires can form a, uh, you know, an agreement. So we have buddies with that empire, right? And so um, then the prince marries the, the, the princess and uh, it's not really of his choosing. He didn't, he, he didn't court her. In some instances, I'm sure that happened. Uh, yeah. they, were, they were satisfied with uh, their parents' decision on who they should marry. Um, but I suspect that most of the time people weren't real thrilled about mom and dad picking who they got to you know, share a bedroom with for the rest of their life. Um, and so marriage took on a utilitarian function. Right. 
or in a real pragmatic function um, where when Jesus comes along and you're right, he gives this, and it's not a radical idea. It's the most natural idea that, Hey men, actually you can't treat your women. Like you can't treat your wives like crap. You have to love them in the same way that I'm loving you. And I'm actually going to be brutally beaten and stuck onto a tree and die for you. That's the image I have when I say to love your wife. That begins to resonate, I think, with what we would feel even if we were in that ancient context merely through the nuptial uh, relationship that we had with our wife. You would, it, it would take, it takes everything. And this is why sex outside of marriage is so dangerous because you're actually doing something that's confined to the marriage bed that's meant to function in order to bring two people into one. And the emotional uh, investment that you have in that person does damage to the soul once it's ripped away. We, we, we feel heartbreak. We actually feel something when we come, when we come into a relationship with a with a with a woman i'm speaking as a man obviously um and that thing isn't for ever like i want it to be forever so even if i try to deny my servant my 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 service to my wife and my love for my wife nature so to speak to use your language earlier the gravity of that that relationship is pulling me into her in a more substantial way than the superficial arrangement that we've been forced into. Yeah, and even and even where there's civilizations where, and this is again, it, it helps. Again, natural law doesn't necessarily say there's one kind of external marriage pattern or civil pattern, you know, that 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 is the the perfect for every circumstance. So maybe there are societies where arranged marriages, you know, we could say this probably, where arranged marriages as such were not a bad thing just given the realities that were on the ground in that context. Right. But 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 it's not a but it's very easy especially in a world so governed by uh, sort of brutal realities, if you will, if we could put it that way, to kind of have a calloused heart toward uh, what marriage was actually supposed to be. Uh, and so, uh, you know, historians at this point actually speak of the first sexual revolution after Christianity, you know, in the in the late antique, you know, in the early late antique period, basically, where these teachings go on the ground among, again, a pretty harsh, hard to live in world with some very hardcore realities that might have, you know, probably by modern standards, very patriarchal in their own way, but it comes in and it, whether you see that as good or bad, depending on, you know, your definition, sure. but, but, the, but the, the teaching of Christ comes in there and it says whatever, in a way, wherever it's gone, whether it's gone into a place that has arranged marriages or chosen marriages or however the actual mechanics of getting married work, um, it goes into each of those places and it says, however you got to this marriage, this is what your marriage needs to look like. And it transforms all of them. I mean, that's what's interesting is you see the sim same teaching that goes into all these wildly different traditions and sets of customs and it doesn't necessarily automatically get rid of the custom as custom as such 
but it transforms it in such a way that it's like people recognize on the backside, oh, this is healing. I am clear, we have clearly been shoved in the direction of being more alive, healthy, God honoring, uh, uh, God honoring and actually flourishing human beings yeah. uh, because we've tapped into something that is just like, it's just resonant with who we are and what we are. It's why the gospel is a relief, yes. <laughs> you know? So, so then here's what we'll do, Joe. You have, uh, how old your youngest son? Thir- uh, uh, my, oh, my youngest son, he's seven. Okay, my daughter is six. We can just make a contract right now. We'll, we'll, we'll get them married. This will be the ar- arrangement. We'll join the families for the uh, rise of Christendom, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not interested, I have to say. <laughs> well, brother, this was a good conversation. We, we left out, I mean, this is a big conversation. And, and as you said uh, earlier, you see it uh, sprinkled in throughout the previous two episodes and you'll see it sprinkled out through the you know, subsequent episodes because it's just natural. And yeah. it's just the way that we exist. Uh, so uh, very good. Um, I want to remind everyone, we'll have links in the show notes on YouTube to uh, like our Facebook page. You can also join our Facebook group, uh, which is getting some good interaction. We can talk about upcoming subjects or previous subjects and uh, dig a little bit more into um, other people's uh, views on how Joe and I are talking. And that's always helpful. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and every other platform that has podcasts. Uh, pl- please go over the Davenant uh, um, YouTube page. You can like that, hit the little bell. That'll give you an update on whenever one of these is produced. And uh, feel free to leave us all sorts of feedback. Joe and I are um, good dudes that want to listen. So we, we, we just want to have a conversation. Uh, but until then, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And uh, we will... Talk to you guys next week. See you next time.